just so you're not afraid that it doesn't uh, dawn on me that you've already been sitting a while and that we've had uh, plenty of opportunity to think about the story of Christmas that's ahead of us. This is going to be a short sermon. I'm breaking two sermon, one sermon into two, and I'm excited for you because I want you to pay attention, and I want you to see what's happening. Um, this section of Joshua is toward the end. We're about to finish the book of Joshua. We skipped a lot of chapters in the middle, and uh, I dare you to go and try to read them. They are filled with hundreds, if not, well, maybe not a thousand, but many hundreds of names that will be hard for you to pronounce. Um, Avery pronounced them so clearly. I'm wondering if it's, if it's really Balaam or Balaam, and, it, and she's convinced me already that it's Balaam, and so I don't know what I'm going to do when I get to that portion of the story. Uh, but it is a, a great section of history that explains how exact God was, but here at the end of Joshua... What we are seeing is God renewing his covenant with his people again as Canaan has been cleared and as the Israelites come and move in. This is a section of scripture that has a lot of history to it. The history uh, really fits the ancient Near East. What you have here is a treaty between the king and his vassal. So it's called suzerain vassal treaty. And what you see in this section particularly is the history that is laid out for you. And you're supposed to hear this history and you're supposed to be amazed at who God is. We enter into the season of the church, the Advent. It is the new year of the church. It is the time when our calendar starts over and we are amazed again at the history. And I want you to think about this section of story that's in front of you. I don't know if you guys like listening to podcasts. I don't know if it was Bryce or somebody else that put me on to this Revisionist History podcast, but I've been listening to it a lot. Malcolm Gladwell, he sounds like a friend of mine, and so I'm, I'm tickled when I listen to it. It makes me think of my friend. But one of the things that he did lately is he went to Nashville, Tennessee, and he talked to the great songwriter by a guy named Bobby Braddock. And Bobby Braddock wrote a lot of the songs that you would know um, and especially if you're familiar with country music. And right there, I lost the majority of you. Don't worry, that's not lost on me either. I understand. But for a Southerner, uh, it is the music with which I grew up. And it is great. And one of the things that they began to ask in this is what makes a good song or even a good story a good story? What is it that makes it good? And they came up with this idea that it must have beauty in it. It must be beautiful. It must be authentic, and it must be specific. And I want you to see that each of those is here in this history that God gives to the Israelites as he reminds them who he is. The first thing that I want you to see is what is beautiful, and it will pass you by unless you study the Bible deeply. It says here in Joshua that God brought the tribes of Israel to Shechem. And he brought them to this special place to remind them of the covenant. And this is what's important about that. This is what's beautiful about that. It's the same place where he met Abraham. Hundreds and hundreds, nearly 600 years earlier. And you go, well, I don't know if I understand. Well, let me ask you this. What if you ended up getting engaged in the same spot that your great, 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 great grandparents got engaged? And you would go, that's beautiful. What a great idea. That's so fun. What if someone were to go back to Plymouth Rock and, and proclaim from Plymouth Rock, freedom is what the United States is about. That's the kind of beauty. That's what this means to these people. That's what God was portraying. 
And there he began to tell them all that he has done. Look through the passage, if you will. How many times does it say that the Israelites were the ones taking any action? He doesn't at all. The beauty of this passage is that God says over and over, I did this, and I did this, and I did this. He said, I went and I found Abraham, the son of Terah, the brother of Nabor, uh, of, of, why did it just skip my, just lost my, of Nahor. And it, it goes over and over how God was faithful and he gave, he gave, and he gave to his people. It's absolutely beautiful. If beauty is the first thing, the second thing is authenticity. I think it can be faithfully said, it's, it's, it's faithfulness here. When you know someone is authentic, they're faithful to who you know them to be. And here, that's what God is telling them. He starts off with saying, look at all that I did for them. Look at these first few verses. Listen to how he says it. Thus says the Lord your God of Israel, long ago, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. And I gave him Isaac and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. And you get the idea. But then if you notice, God changes in verse 5 and following. And he says, not only did I do that for them, I did it for you. I did it for you is what he points out. He then goes on to speak to the people who are present with him. Only Joshua and only Caleb are the grandparents there. All the other grandparents, dead. All of them, dead in the wilderness. But to the grandparents, Joshua and Caleb, to the parents who are there and to the children who are there, he says, and for you, this is what I did. I have been faithful. And then finally, he goes to specifics. He says, not only have I been faithful to you to do all that I said, but I have blessed you. It's amazing. He pulls out this blessing that, again, is lost on us. Look at where it is. I want to show it to you. It says this in verse 9. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel. And he, inv and he sent and invited Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam. Instead, he blessed you. And you go, well, that doesn't mean anything to me. Well, that's because you weren't the Israelites who were wandering in the desert at this point. Balaam was a false prophet, a prophet for, for another god whom this king of the Moabites brought in to curse the Israelites. And Balaam rode a donkey to go do the job. And the angel of the Lord met the donkey, but Balaam couldn't see the donkey. And the donkey tried to get out of the way of the angel of the Lord and went into a vineyard. And, and Balaam got mad and whipped the donkey. And the donkey went further because the angel of the Lord stood in front of him in the vineyard and pressed Balaam against the wall and crushed his foot. It's a fascinating story in Numbers 22 and 23. You can go back and look at it. And finally, the donkey's so afraid that it lies down on the ground. And Balaam is beating the donkey. And all of a sudden, the donkey turns around and speaks to Balaam. And says, have I not been your donkey your whole life? And now you're treating me this way? Think about this. This is, this is the Bible. This is what God says. Remember this story. I can't hear that without thinking of the donkey in Shrek. You know his name, Donkey. And I'm pretty sure that this donkey sounded a lot like Eddie Murphy. I'm convinced of it. And what's amazing is how specific God says, I 
will bless you. And he said, when Balaam came to curse you, I wouldn't let him. The angel of the Lord said, if you curse those people, I will kill you. And so Balaam came, and instead of cursing the Israelites for the Moabite king, he blessed them over and over and over. And do you want to know my favorite blessing that he gave? A specific blessing, the only place we know of in the Old Testament where this is referenced. In Numbers 24, he says, out of Jacob, out of Israel, a star will rise and the scepter of my kingdom will never depart. A special promise, right? And then God says, not only have I blessed you, but you have received. He says it wasn't by your sword that you got this land. It wasn't because you labored in the vineyards that you eat from them. It wasn't because you built the cities that you live in them. I gave them to you. This is God's story. So what is our takeaway from this? What is our takeaway as we are in this Advent season, in the midst of His story? Our takeaway is simply that we are part of a much bigger story than we daily live and we daily understand. God's story is the story that's unfolding before us. You see, he spoke to the Israelites about they and you. And as the history would evolve, it became they again, those Israelites, and you who would experience the grace of God. As Dan said, those many years later, thousands upon thousands, you worship a God who made himself known to a son worshiper in the desert named Abraham. He has been faithful, and it's his story that is unfolding. What is the other thing that we begin to see? We see that that story isn't even close to over, right? We understand that the Israelites failed. We see in this story beauty and authenticity and specificity. We see that the Israelites failed. They were sent into exile. They were brought back from where they were destroyed in Babylon, and there they lived in oppression for hundreds of years. We read in the prophet Isaiah that darkness covered the earth, that it covered them like gloom. Where is our God? And Isaiah writes that in the midst of this, God would meet his people again like in the days of Gibeon when he fought on their side that he would do a strange thing. And Isaiah 28 says, it was a strange thing and indeed, and an alien thing. And he says, it was an alien thing indeed. What would happen? But a star would rise. And kings from the east would come to Jerusalem and say, we have seen the star. Guess where Balaam was from? He was from the east. It is so specific and it's so beautiful. And there they would find a baby in a manger, Jesus, the Son of God, who came to set his people free. Jesus, the incarnation of God, very God of very God. Jesus, the one who would live our perfect life for us and die our death in our place. Jesus, the light of the world, who would shine into the darkness. Jesus, the one who before he died prayed for you. 
so that you would know this is your story. He said, Father, not only keep those whom I have told about your love, but keep those who will learn of you through them. That's you and me. We are part of this story. The other thing that we understand is we are not the agents of this story, right? We receive blessing upon blessing. What do we do when we come to Advent? When we come and we sit in the story of God's unfolding graciousness to us, I want to encourage you and say the best thing that you can do in Christmas is to come in humble gratitude. Because as the Israelites would have heard of God's faithfulness, and when God says to them, it's not by your sword, and it's not because you labored or because you built or because you planted that you receive, it's because I have set my love upon you that it is with humble gratitude that we come to Advent. A phrase that my son learned this week when he was given a gift that was beyond anything he would have imagined. And all I told him to say is, you've got to learn how to say, I will receive. I will receive. And unless you and I learn to say, I will receive, we miss Christmas. This is the Advent season. This is the season when we are reminded of God's story. Bobby Braddock said that the other thing that makes great songs, great songs, and great stories, great stories, are the surprise turns. Who would have ever guessed that the God of the universe would enter into his creation as a baby, would enter into it and at that incarnation began the recreation of humanity. Athanasius, who wrote in the fourth century on the incarnation, said that when Christ took on the body of a human being, it was not a limitation to him, but it was an instrument to him that he might accomplish what only the glory of God could have devised. That he might, as becoming an infant, take on flesh that he might save us. Your life is in this story. This passage is covenant renewal. We'll cover the second half of it next week. But I want you to think about what the incarnation means for you this week so that you might be encouraged next week when we talk about the covenant renewal. Luke wrote on Athanasius this week an update that he sends to his supporters. And I read it and I was taken aback. I was shocked to remember that Christ was not limited in becoming a human being, but it was the instrument by which he would save us. And not only that, when Christ became a human being, he became one and didn't say being human is wrong, but in fact reminded us that it is good. His creation is very good. And as the last surprise hits you, Luke said it so well. We all focus 
around our death. And because of that, we live our lives for ourselves instead of for Christ. And Luke said in the last part of his meditation, he said, I want you to look in the mirror this week. Go in the bathroom and look in the mirror, and I want you to say, I'm alive. And Luke says, cynically, the next voice in your head will be, yeah, but I'm going to die. I'm wasting away. The second law of entropy is already at work in my life, right? I'm dying. And Luke says, no. And Athanasius says, no. And the gospel says, no. But what is true is that you look in the mirror and you say, I am alive. But one day, this body is going to be resurrected again. Christmas is the continuation of this story so that when we come to this table as a renewal of God's covenant, the entirety defines this body that is not doomed to death, but is guaranteed resurrection because of Christ. Pray with me.